Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Because you got this show that was a total flopper on Broadway, lasted maybe two months at most. Nobody liked it in terms of the critics. And yet, it is the last musical that ever had a song be a hit on the radio. What a crazy cultural imprint to have as a quote-unquote flop. I also think part of that might be the fact that we don't really have the same relationship to radio anymore, but... Yes, I think the, the the fact that not only did it have this breakaway hit, but it was one of the earliest introductions of rap into the crossover mainstream. It's fair enough. And from the guys who did ABBA, go figure. Yeah, who would who would have guessed? Who would have guessed rap would find its way to musical theater thanks to uh, Swedish dudes? But if you think of the things that made rap initially popular in a crossover kind of way, we, we think of the Aerosmith Run DMC collaboration, and that was two years after One Night in Bangkok. Appeared really? on TV, yeah. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Yeah, so it's a really weird phenomenon. I feel like it was last year my little sister was like, do you know that that song One Night in Bangkok's from a musical? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I do. Welcome to the club. Welcome to chess. Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite shows in musical theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today, we are talking about the musical Chess with my friend and a very talented composer of both film and the musical theater, Mr. Michael Gordon Shapiro. Hey, Michael. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. My pleasure. You requested this show. I did. Tell me why. Well, first, I'm a fan of the show. I've listened to probably most of the episodes so far. (laughs) And I thought, what show has he not talked about yet that I really want to talk about? And can I somehow finagle my way as a guest? This (laughs) episode is yes. This this episode (laughs) is testament to the success of my persistence. Now, when did you first hear Chess? Because it's like mid to late 80s. So what was going on in your life at that point? I think I was probably watching MTV and I saw the video for One Night in Bangkok and I had no idea what chess was. I thought it was a pretentious name for an album with a really pretentious video, but it was kind of intriguing because it didn't sound like a pop tune. There were pop influences. The bass line and the use of synths was very on brand for pop music circa 1984 or 1985 or wherever that came out. But I thought, what is this weird song? And I did a little investigation. And thanks to a friend who brought the cast album to summer camp, where we were all <laughs> trapped for two months. What is this summer camp and why wasn't I invited? You were listening to Chess? That- well, it's probably more accurate to say my friend was aggressively handing the CD to everyone who would listen <laughs> and singing excerpts from it but it worked and i said okay now i get it and i kind of got a sense of what the show was about your friend sounds like me with steel pier um i don't say this very often i don't think i've ever said this for our purposes today i think we're going to mainly be talking about the london version of chess prior to coming to new york it seems to me like the more interesting product 
What seems to be the consensus is the creators of the show recognize problems in the London version, and in order to fix them, they changed a lot of things for the Broadway version. They moved songs around, and I think they assigned them to different characters, but they didn't really fix any problem. They just made it different. And subsequent versions after that seem to have all primarily fallen back on the original. So if you're looking at a new production of chess, of which there are apparently some scattered examples, you're mostly seeing the, the London original. So that seems to be canon. Now, apart from Chess the Musical, are you a fan of Chess the Game? I was reigning chess champion of my fourth grade class. Stop. And uh, I think I peaked at that age because I haven't really picked up the board since then. So uh, I'm, I'm fond of it, but I don't play it regularly. I think I've played it a couple of times. I know the rules. I know the names of all the little pieces. And that's about it. Do you know the game well enough to tell us what characteristics make a world-class chess player? I do, because uh, there have been studies on what make chess players good. And it's not intelligence, though that helps, but it's playing a lot of chess. And it's really a case where you need to overload your brain with pattern recognition and to be able to isolate chunks of the board in memory so that when you recognize those chunks in a new context, you can apply the appropriate problem-solving strategies. So experience, you have to put in the hours. Yes, exactly. It's very much almost like an athletic event because you just need to spend time doing it over and over again. Crazy. I went to this website called The Chess World <laughs> and found the following statement, which I think is really fascinating. It says, What makes chess so unique from the rest of the board games is the fact that there can be an almost infinite number of positions. So, after each player makes just one move, there are 400 different positions possible. After two moves, about 72,000 positions possible. After three moves, 9 million. After four moves, 288 billion positions can arise on the chessboard. So the, the chance of recognizing even a handful of those 288 billion I think is a, a testament to what you're saying, which is you have to put in the hours, you have to recognize strategy and patterns and react appropriately. Now that we've talked about chess the game, let's talk about the Cold War. <laughs> I can't even believe I'm saying that. It makes me laugh out loud. The musical chess is about chess, the game, and the Cold War. Now, the Cold War, for those who may not know was people can't even decide on the years. Like, the Cold War is so almost undefinable, it feels incredibly inspired that it was a metaphor for chess because there are 288 billion ways to look at this thing. A very, very standard look at it would be that after World War II, the US of A and the USSR, the Soviet Union, had worked together briefly to defeat Nazi Germany. And so now, left in the victory of World War II, you had these two powers who were essentially trying to assert dominion, like world dominion, or at least a, a very powerful presence in the world, without needing to go about the way that Nazi Germany did. So instead, they spend the next 40 years playing mind tricks, uh, espionage, racing to the moon, all of these different moves on the chessboard, so to speak, to try and prove that they are the better power. And this really goes up until the end of the 80s, maybe early 90s. Early 90s, yeah. That's when the Soviet Union crumbled. That's when the, it only ended because the Soviet Union crumbled. Exactly. So it is a really ingenious way of exploring. Like, I would never want to watch a musical about the Cold War. Because nothing really happened. It's all based on suspicion. It's all based on conjecture and hypothesis. So how on earth do you like stage something that even has any sort of energy? I think the Cold War touched many specific lives. So it makes a very good backdrop for a story. I, don't, I agree in that. I don't think the Cold War itself is a story, except in kind of a very long historical sense. But you could easily 
look at individual people who were in some way swept away by the Cold War, someone who lived in Soviet bloc countries or someone involved in espionage or someone who ran into censorship. And I think this is a pretty transparent segue. I think that's pretty much the idea behind chess. It uses the, mm-hmm. the setting of the Cold War to create tensions where a particular story uh, can take place. 100%. So in this story, you have a world chess championship and the two main competitors are Russian and American. So right from the get-go, you're like, oh, I get it. It's a chess game, but also it's a metaphor for what's going on over this period of time. The American is a chess player named Freddy. How would you describe Freddy? Well, he's a pretty clear fictionalization and exaggeration of Bobby Fischer, who was famous. Who's like rock star chess player. Yeah, but, but with, with a kind of John McEnroe attitude, you know, very arrogant. Yes. Uh, I don't know if the real Bobby Fischer was as arrogant as Freddie Trumper, but uh, Freddie in the show is definitely full of himself, and he is also very contemptuous, perhaps for a mix of right and wrong reasons, of the Soviet Union and, and very prejudiced against all Russians as a result. Now, one of the things that I didn't realize about the very competitive world of chess is that you're allowed a second. And a second is basically a companion. And the joke is that they're allowed to, like, fetch you sandwiches and milk. But <laughs> but the reality is that they can talk through strategy with you in the midst of these really long sessions, these really long tournaments. And Freddy's number two is a woman by the name of Florence who, in the London version, is a Hungarian-born, British-raised woman who is both his second and his lover. You might say that Freddie, he seems to thrive off of attention and he needs someone to feed his ego. And Florence really plays that role at the beginning of the show. So he may not need to be in a romantic relationship with her in order to have that kind of dependency. Mm, Just as long as he's getting his attention. Right. And he might... I mean, he does eventually say, come back to me, but he never specifies the particular relationship that they had beyond the chess relationship. In the script, there is some action where she, like, she pushes him down on the bed. But what's really established from the get-go is that you can't really trust what anybody is doing as being genuine. Or is it really just strategy, you know, a position, a move on the board to win? Because at the beginning of this whole story, Florence is incredibly dedicated to chess. Chess is her life. And she wants Freddie to win. Freddie's incredibly difficult to deal with. And yet she's willing to put up with it because chess is her life. On the Russian side, you've got Anatoly. And Anatoly is married. He is the brightest chess star (laughs) of Russia. And yet doesn't seem to have the ego or theatrics of Freddie. Go figure. The the dramatic American. (laughs) This really is a British musical. (laughs) And Anatoly seems to be, he has a certain amount of guilt in working with the authoritarian Soviets, who he acknowledges are controlling people. And he doesn't have any illusions about the nature of his backers. But Mm. I think someone in his position... That was an unintentional lyric, shout out. Someone in his position um, has to work, you know, if you're in the Soviet Union in, in the, the 80s or 70s, you kind of need the government's backing. They're, they're really behind everything. And to be in a prominent position to play, you're, you're working with the Soviets or you're not going to work at all. So he uh, seems very conflicted between his love for chess, which seems sincere, and his remorse at collaborating with the uh, strong-arm tactics of the Soviet Union. Look, I understand that there are a lot of problems with our country in the United States. Believe me. And maybe this is just a romantic view, but sometimes when I watch the Olympics and I see those athletes from communist countries, I'm like, oh my gosh, please let them win just so that the government doesn't like punish them for not winning. Do you ever feel that way? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of a sad sympathy to have to harbor. You know, it's likewise yeah. for, for China. Exactly. But, I'm like, oh my gosh, please stick the landing. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I can sympathize with the sympathy. So these are our main characters, and we'll talk a little more about the plot later. 
this whole idea was the brainchild of Tim Rice. Tim Rice being, a, at this point, a very famous British lyricist. He had worked with Andrew Lloyd Webber in Evita and Jesus Christ Superstar. Uh, blah, 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 blah. What, what else am I forgetting? Did you mention Joseph? Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat? Absolutely. So they've become British royalty together. And at least from reading Andrew Lloyd Webber's autobiography, while they worked really well together, they are not perfectly matched in terms of compadres. So at this point in the early 80s, Tim Rice decides to work on another project instead of following Andrew Lloyd to his next thing. And the project that Tim Rice dreams up is this idea of creating a musical about chess, using the Cold War as the backdrop, so on and so forth. And it is going to be written with the two songwriters from the group ABBA, Benny Anderson, Bjorn Ulvaeus. Totally guessing on the pronunciation there. Talk to me as a composer, Mr. Michael Gordon Shapiro, about what makes ABBA special in terms of their musical construction, because they really did take the world by storm, set up a really interesting sound that continues to be called upon and replicated today. What's going on there? When I was a kid, I kind of resented ABBA because I was always listening to Dancing Queen and I rolled my eyes and say, here comes that <laughs> song again. And I'm not really the target demo spiritually or otherwise, but <laughs> I, I kind of thought they were giant cheese balls. But over time, I've actually come to give them a, a grudging respect as unapologetically pop songwriters. And I think the two things that really are core to their appeal is a talent for melody, a oh. real talent for catchy melody. They're, they're great at that. And also a unabashed, sunny disposition. Uh, they do not mind being cheesy and hyper-sentimental and when they're being tragic, it's a kind of over-the-top tragic tone. You know, it's, it's like a, a grand beautiful melodrama. tragic. Exactly. So when I recently saw a, a regional production of uh, Mamma Mia, and I found myself enjoying it almost despite myself, because the music is, is just endearing in a way. I, I don't know if this existed really in the pop world before, certainly in jazz and so forth, but... They were never afraid to go melancholy with their cheerful melodies. There's like this really catchy melody that has kind of a bittersweet pleadingness to it, you know? I'm trying to think of a good example. Like Take a Chance on Me seems to be uh, an optimistic kind of persuasion attempt, mm -hmm. but it's actually sad and desperate. And I think that was the <laughs> intention behind it. You know, you listen to it and you're saying, when everyone you, you want to be with is no longer available, I'll still be here. Yeah, yeah, right. That is kind of sad now that you mention it. I never thought of that. The one that's coming to mind right now for me is, um, oh, I can't remember the, t the name of it, but it goes, one of us is dying, da 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 And it feels like, when you hear when you hear that melody coming from somebody, it sounds like it's coming from the depths of their soul. And I feel the same way about Sia. Mm -hmm. She's able to construct these pop melodies that sound like they're coming from someplace much deeper than a dance floor. You know, um, there's a yearning to it that is very theatrical and is all over the place in chess. I think we could see that influence in some of the, the ballads that are scattered throughout the show, like uh, uh, what's the one, Somebody Else's Story, and I Know mm -hmm. Him So Well. Uh, those... I Know Him So Well, absolutely. Yeah. I Know Him So Well is at the end of Whitney Houston's first album. Really? Yes. It was on my birthday. I was, <laughs> I was like, ooh, I need a Whitney day. So I just <laughs> went, <laughs> I went to Spotify and just kind of pulled up all of her old albums and listened to them top to bottom. And I Know Him So Well came up. Here, I'm going to look up and see who she sang it with. Because well, it is a duet, that's right. Right. Sissy, that's creepy. Okay. <laughs> she sang I Know Him So Well with Sissy Houston, who I believe is her mom. Hmm. Wow. Okay, keep that in mind, folks, when we come into that part of the plot. So chess is also kind of a smorgasbord, to use a Swedish term. Is it a Swedish term? I hope so. Of musical styles. 
When you listen to the original concept album, which Tim Rice followed right along in the pattern that he and Android Weber had done with many of their famous musicals, which was release the score as a concept album first before it was produced on stage to really get people excited about the music. And it worked. It 100% worked. But when you listen to that album, you have classical music. You have these huge orchestral pieces with also almost uh, Mozart Requiem type choral pieces. And then some of these more ABBA-like pop songs. We have One Nine Bangkok that includes rap. It all works together to make for a really electrifying album. Truly. I don't know how it all works together, but there is such an energy. I can't, I, I have a hard time defining it. I, I completely agree. I think the score is really extraordinary. And the best example I can think of another score that blends a then contemporary sound, you know, a contemporary sound sure. of time period of the time with a almost cinematic orchestral element is perhaps Jesus Christ Superstar. Well, there you go. Uh, but it's, it's a really interesting mix. I mean, musical theater tends to have a, a variety show element to it. You know, the, it's the, the, the vaudeville legacy. The pastiche of it all. Yeah, but here, it's, a, it's, not, a, it's not like now a gospel song and now a comedy mm-hmm. number and now a ragtime. It's, there's a core musical language, which is early to mid-'80s pop, and then there's this accompanying language, which is neoclassical in some spots and feels operatic in other spots. So rather than there being a little bit of this and that, there's just kind of two or three musical styles that are consistently present throughout the whole show. That's great. The album and the score are a big hit in London and spawn a couple of hits. I Know Him So Well is, gets on the charts as well. And it reaches the ears of Michael Bennett. Now, Michael Bennett is a legend, one of my favorite director-choreographers of all time. He definitely changed the American musical theater landscape with a chorus line, but he also did Dreamgirls, he choreographed Follies, he really understood how to bring the visual language of musical theater to the next level and to compete with what was going on in film. He was he was a genius. He was also a a little difficult, a little egotistical, so on and so forth. Toward the end of the 80s, he was privately dealing with AIDS and was having a few health issues, but he decided to take on chess because, from what I gather, he was really moved by the electricity and energy of the score. And his approach to the material was he was going to stage this show in London with hundreds of television screens everywhere. The energy of the music was best matched by dance and technology. And so there was going to be virtually no set, but video screens everywhere that sometimes were showing action happening offstage while the chorus or the choral numbers or even the dance numbers were reflecting the energy and the hoopla surrounding the events. He casts the show They go to like a country in Europe and spend (laughs) so much money on television sets. They're all ready to go into rehearsals and then he has to drop out because of health. It's the very last thing that Michael Bennett touches before he passes away due to illnesses related to AIDS. It's interesting how he presaged a lot of what we see subsequently when you can project images more economically in a theater. So the the idea of having imagery on stage uh, is fairly common today, but it sounds like what he was trying to do was ahead of its time and also extremely ambitious. Extremely ambitious, extremely expensive, and also remember how heavy televisions used to be? (laughs) Right, those I are mean, CRT TVs, not, not flat screens. Exactly. They had to do some crazy waiting on that stage to make sure the whole thing didn't collapse underneath them. So with Michael Bennett dropping out at the last minute, they had to find someone to replace him. Who they end up getting is Trevor Nunn, who is probably the antithesis to Michael Bennett in terms of stagecraft. He is very much a theater's director. Um, looking to present the story, 
which is beautiful. And he's done it legendarily speaking in Les Mis. He was the director of Les Mis. He somehow made cats work. Um, he's, he is ambitious and yet his approach is always story first. He comes in kind of seeing what Michael Bennett has brought to the project and decides to you. It's a miracle that the show even got up truly, because he did an amazing job in taking what was given to him, but also going in the direction that he wanted. That being said, it ceases right then and there to be a dance show. There's no choreography. If anything, there's musical staging and thus begin the revisions upon revisions. The show opens to mixed reviews, not all bad, uh, but it is a hit. It runs for a couple of years and to this day is still considered one of the favorite musicals of the UK. So now, of course, when something's a hit in the UK, the idea is, well, maybe we can take it to Broadway and it becomes like the next jewel in the crown. Unfortunately, the year that chess came over to America was also the season that Phantom of the Opera came over. And we tend to be a little bit prejudiced in American musical theater. And I think that on top of all of the problems of chess, we already had our British musical for that year, and it was Phantom of the Opera. So there's no need for another one. Trevor Nunn made huge, huge changes to the show from London, many of which included cutting songs, adding a few songs, and adding almost a third more dialogue to the show. At the very first preview of Chess on Broadway, the show ran four hours. (laughs) That's way Um, too long. Way too long. And even when they got technical things under control, because they had also added much more scenery, they had these really interesting pillars that were constantly moving and creating new spaces. The show was still coming in over three hours long, which for the show is just, it's way too long. What's interesting, if you look at the description of the changes that were made and then subsequently jettisoned, it's clear that they, they knew something was wrong. But they also clearly didn't know what was wrong because Mm. they changed all the wrong things. They were really rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Uh, (laughs) And I I say this as someone who loves the Titanic, right? Like, I I love this show. But uh, they they moved songs around. They changed the logistical details of the show. What I was talking about a little earlier. But none of it seems better. It just seems different. If you could describe what types of things you like to compose as musical theater, what would it be? I tend to, as a stylistic uh, tendency, lean towards wit and um, and that kind of humor, kind of clever humor. But as a driving principle, whether I'm writing something witty or serious, I, I look for big stakes in, in, a, in a logical universe. There's something that can be won or lost that's really important, and it has to feel grounded in reality. So I, I don't like shows where there doesn't seem like there's anything we should care about or shows where it, you're not sure what everyone's upset about because you don't understand how the world works. I feel like that's those are the two problems you need to steer away from. That's cool. I also want to agree with you in terms of wit. Your sense of humor is so unique, so funny. You have such a unique voice, and I hope that people get to experience it. You're very kind to say so, and that's very appreciated. And I will even try to turn a plug into something connected to our topic today. Oh, please. By, by pointing out that one of Chess's problems is that there is not a lick of humor in the entire <gasps> four hours or whichever version you're watching. And oh my gosh, you're so right. I didn't realize this until I was listening to the, the 2008 London concert version, which is one of the two uh-huh. that you can easily get on, on Spotify right now. And I was listening to it. And there's one moment where um, there's kind of a really weak quasi-joke. It's not even a joke. It's just someone makes sort of a kind of cutesy remark, I think. And, and there's this bark of laughter from the audience. The like, audience is like, ha, 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 right. ha, ha, and then we, I thought, we need a joke so bad. <laughs> but I was thinking, that's weird. And maybe, But hearing that moment made me realize there is no humor in this entire show. There's a kind of cynicism that you hear, and there's sarcasm. But this is something the show desperately needs, and it does not deliver. So yeah. 
Cold War ain't funny. Yeah, there's you, you will not find a, a laughter moment in the show. That's so funny. Um, it gets panned by critics. Frank Rich, I was considering reading his review, but it's also almost too mean to even bring up. <laughs> After that, it gets ignored mainly by the Tony Awards. It gets two nominations, one for Best Actress, one for Best Actor, but it doesn't get any nominations for score, scenic design, nothing else. So with no attention from the Tonys, with the horrible notices, and the fact that it was so stinking expensive because they were accruing overtime for being over three hours, the show closes only after a couple of months. Now, there are a few things in the Broadway version that I think are worth mentioning. Number one, first and foremost, Judy Kuhn. And I will say it again, Judy Kuhn. Legendary. She was the one who played Florence, and in fact, when they brought the show to America, they decided to make the character of Florence an American. She had starred in Les Mis as Cosette, so she knew Trevor Nunn. She plays Florence, and her vocals on the Broadway cast recording, which they did make, are epic. Please go listen to her sing Nobody's Side. Also, they added a new song for her called Someone Else's Story, which is now very much tied to the chess score. It's kind of crazy to think that it hadn't always been in there, but they added that for the New York production. Do you know who David Carroll is, Michael? I don't. Okay, so he was nominated for Best Actor. He has this gorgeous voice. His anthem, when he sings anthem on the Broadway cast recording, it's incredible. He then gets cast in Grand Hotel, the Mari Yeston Grand Hotel, as like the Baron or whatever that character is who sings Love Can't Happen. And in previews, he dies. Dies literally? Literally. Not on stage or anything. I can't even remember. I think it was like a heart attack or something. But he passes away. And it is such a tragedy because I think he really would have become one of the most memorable leading men of the 80s and 90s. It's really sad. How old was he when he passed? Very young. Let me look that up. So let's see. Oh, you're kidding me. Oh my gosh, now I'm looking this up. He had AIDS as well and died of a pulmonary embolism. Oh my gosh, what a horrible time. It says he was born in 1950, died in 92. So he died at 42. 42, okay. Yeah, crazy tragic. So let's talk through the show, shall we? That's... Um, It gets a little complex, but stay with us because we're going to make our way through it. We already introduced these characters, but the whole story begins with the Arbiter. The Arbiter meaning like the Grand Wizard of Chess. (laughs) He's the the referee. So like if you, I think there's a rule in chess. I don't know if it's part of this universe, but if you touch a piece, you then have to move it. So Let's oh. pretend that that role is in effect during the story. The arbiter would be the guy who says, hey, you touched your queen. You've got to do a queen move now. Okay, that makes sense. He begins the entire show by telling us the story of chess, which is really an interesting song. I don't know how much of it is actually true. Anciently, there were these two princes who were constantly fighting, I guess fighting for dominion. And eventually one of the princes dies is, you know, killed in battle. And their mother, the queen, is beside herself because, of course, one of her sons has died, and she holds the other son responsible, as well she should. He then goes to all of these wise men and is like, how do I get the love of my mother back? What should I do? And they said, well, maybe you should explain to her how this whole battle occurred by creating a board of black and white squares and showing how it was his fault. And in doing so, with all of the pieces and the board, that was the birth of the game of chess. So it's like if you have a traffic accident and you're trying to convince your mom that you weren't being reckless, you take two model cars and you say like, look, I was driving here and this guy just careens out of the left lane and you you play it out so that you've got a visual demonstration of why you think you're, you're innocent. So that's kind of the analog of what this legend is suggesting. So from the get-go, we learn that the origins of this game are self-serving, to be perfectly honest. They are strategic. It's not born out of play so much as born out of personal objective. 
blaming somebody else or ascribing blame to somebody else for political reasons. Even in this case, it's a prince wanting to stay in good graces with presumably his queen mother. And out of this opening, we are then brought into Murano, Italy, where the World Chess Championship is going to be taking place. It's like your typical establish the setting. It sounds like something that might be playing at, at, at like Fantasyland and Disneyland. Or perhaps something by Rodgers and Hammerstein. Thank you. Exactly. It's very traditional is what I, I'm getting at. <laughs> I want to point out that these two opening numbers are kind of representative of everything good and bad in this musical. Oh my gosh, go. I can't wait to All hear right. this. So we've got great music, both the prelude... Uh, the history of chess and mm-hmm. Murano. This is just some glorious writing. This this falls into the kind of neoclassical cinematic aspect of the styles that are running through the show, mm-hmm. and they're just they're just really fun. The, the Murano is a, a kind of a, a lovely waltz like pan to the the countryside, and the prelude is neo romantic and it introduces themes and melodies that we're going to hear again and again. So it it sets up some leitmotifs that are going to recur. So those are great qualities for the first two numbers. Now, the problems are, A, who cares? (laughs) B, I can't understand what they're saying because Tim Rice doesn't know how to write lyrics all the time. So with respect to the who cares part, yeah, and you could quote me on that. Um, (laughs) I have a lot to say on that subject, but the lyrics are so dense and and so many words that are rich with syllables are being compressed into these very rapid fire lines that they are literally incomprehensible, I think, in most listings. Like, can you listen to that prelude and actually understand what it is saying? No. No. Absolutely I don't think not. I don't think anyone in the theater could do that. I think no. if you listen to the album and look at the lyrics and replay it, you could say, oh, okay, I get it. It's Prince and he's making a war simulation. That's cool. But it's just really hard to understand. And then on top of that problem, uh, Indigenous to the original cast album recording, or the, the concept album that predated the actual show, in those days, they were very fond of reverb and mm-hmm. also slapback echo, where every time you hear somebody sing, you immediately hear a discrete echo of what they just sang. So that gives it a kind of punchiness and a richness at the cost of intelligibility. Mm. So you've got lyrics that you can't really discern, made worse by heavy reverb, on a subject that we don't actually care about, or at least that we don't know why we should care yet. And I think we're going to be haunted by these problems throughout the entire show. <laughs> and we're also going to be uplifted by what these songs bring to us, which is just great music. And, and that's kind of chess in a nutshell. I don't care, and it's such great music, and I can't understand what they're saying. And isn't that kind of the thing about pop music, too? If you needed to understand everything that was being said in a song, Ariana Grande would not be a superstar. Right. That is a big difference between pop music and theater music. Right. So it isn't until this point that now we meet our main characters. <laughs> so we've been through that entire Murano sequence. We've heard the history of chess. And now we meet Freddie, Florence, and Anatoly. Uh, Anatoly. Is that how you keep saying it? I want to say how you say it. I think I say Anatoly, but I'm just okay. imitating one actor's interpretation. Let's all imitate him then. Let's go ahead and skip to press conference because that's one of your favorite songs. It is. Basically, this is where you start seeing how Michael Bennett was really focused on the media because there are a lot of journalists covering this chess championship. Everyone's interested in the backstory of what's going on in these, these relationships. Is Florence with Freddie? So on and so forth. And it's, it's introducing us to Freddie both explicitly because there's a lot of Q&A with the press and mm-hmm. that's a sneaky way to tell us what's been happening. But it's um, also revealing something about Florence because after Freddie stomps off in anger at one of their questions, she steps up and defends him and gives the press the what for. And mm. I think that's a really exciting moment, much more for Florence's defiant defense of Freddie than it is for for Freddie's tantrum. Now, originally on the album and I believe on stage, Freddie was played by Murray Head, who had played Judas in Jesus Christ Superstar. And Florence was played by Elaine Page, who is like 4'11", 
just like the tiniest little munchkin of a woman with one of the biggest voices in all of British musical theater. And at this point, she and Tim Rice were... I can't tell from that sound if that's good or bad. Well, they were were together. Okay. Who knows if it was good or bad, but they were together and the, the role was written for her. Interesting. Hence why Freddie, being an American, his second is a Hungarian-born British woman. There's also significance to the fact that she is from Budapest, because uh, Budapest in in Hungary was under the heel of the Soviets during the the 60s, I think, or maybe all the way through close to the end of the Cold War, but they were oppressed. Because you're asking, why why are you with this guy? He seems like a jerk. You seem nice. And in fact, Anatoly asked that very question. And one reason is that she is sympathetic to his anti-Soviet stance for more personal biographical reasons. Uh, Not only was her childhood destroyed, but her father was uh, either killed or or imprisoned. We don't know at this point yet. Everybody has baggage and motivations and a grind to axe. Whoa, an axe That was a great, please keep that. That was an amazing expression. (laughs) That's very Jeff. I always, I'm always flipping things around. Now, uh, as you mentioned earlier, Anatoly is not exactly happy with feeling manipulated and controlled by his government. And Molokov, who is his second and is kind of in charge, tells him, look, if you want to get in your opponent's head, Freddie, the American, then you need to get his woman. And if you get the woman, you win the game. And Anatoly is disgusted by this and so he sings this song called where i want to be and who i want to be and make it over the which i feel like is in every audition book <laughs> of all time for any like Bar- barry tenor <laughs> credit where credit is due i think this song is awesome I it think is this amazing really works. and i'm i'm quick to bash tim rice but this is a real this is a real win uh, on his part as well as the the phenomenally dark soaring music agreed Agreed. What I think is interesting here is that Chess does not have a traditional I want song for any of the seemingly three major characters. And instead, in about the part of the show where you traditionally have an I want song, you have an angry lament with no particular goal or desire expressed, merely a identification of the things that you don't like. And in this case, it's Anatoly ruining his being manipulated by the Soviets. And yet it is so impassioned that it works. It roots us. It connects us to Anatoly in the same way that the traditional I want song would to a main character. That's so cool. Thank you for sharing that. You're absolutely right. He doesn't say anything that he wants, but the fact that he's so passionate about what he doesn't, we're like, works for me. Yeah, everything about the song is is really great, and the orchestration complements the meaning of the lyrics, where he, I forget the exact line, but he's kind of singing about how the Soviets slowly insinuated their way into his life, and the strings are doing this little chromatic accompaniment that sounds kind of snaky. The music is almost playing out what he's describing the lyrics, so that's, a, that's something to listen for. How cool. I'm so glad you're here to point out these things. Thank you so much. Okay, let's go to the first chess game where Freddie and Anatoly are playing. And I believe this is kind of one of those things that was essentially to happen off stage because, once again, chess isn't that interesting to look at. But in any case, what happens is that tensions are mounting. It's a really intense chess game. And then Freddie gets really angry because he's a hothead and tips over the board and walks out. So... Now it's like, Freddy strikes again, we got to figure out what to do next. And what the seconds kind of put into place is a meeting for everyone. Yeah, for Anatoly, for Freddy, for Florence, for Molokov, they can all get together and talk this out so that the championship can continue. And it's going to happen on a mountainside. So Florence tells Freddy about it. They get into this huge fight because he doesn't want to go. He thinks that Florence is, you know, being a Soviet sympathizer. And she's like, no, I chess is what is important. The game is what is important. Let's do this. And he says, no, no, no. And this gives way to Florence lamenting that whole situation. Another lament. 
but wow, what an exciting lament called Nobody's Side, which is nobody's on nobody's side. That's the lyric. I love that song. It's probably my favorite in the whole show. I don't know Isn't why. It, I it's thrilling. It. I wish it had been attached to a decision rather than had been just a general lament. Like it was fueling a big decision to be made. Yeah, like I wish she had made the decision to leave Freddie during that song or as a result of that song, because that mm. would have made it part of the story mm-hmm. rather than just this expression of, of ah! frustration. Yeah, exactly. Because it's so yeah. powerful and it just needs a story point to latch onto. Uh, if there is a case to be made for it fueling something, it then gives way to her being open to having a relationship with Anatoly. Because that's ultimately what happens next. She shows up to have this meeting on the mountain. Freddie's a no-show. Shocker. And so she and Anatoly start talking, and there's a connection there. And they sing this song called Mountain Duet, which is probably Chess's version of the bench scene (laughs) from Carousel. And it's beautiful, and just listening to it and envisioning it on a gorgeous mountainside makes me all happy inside. I think this is another really successful song in the show. In musical theater, you have to accelerate the pace of relationships because you don't have time to sit and watch two people gradually falling in love. No time. Music has to somehow suggest that passage of time, and this song manages to pull it off pretty effectively. The last lyric of that song is, I can't think of anything I would rather do than be stuck on a mountain talking to you or something like that. Yeah. And I believe also ends with a kiss, which is when Freddie actually shows up and sees them kissing. Now he's absolutely convinced that Florence is a Soviet sympathizer, and it sends Freddie into this spiral. He loses the next chess game, right? I believe so, if memory serves. That whole disaster leads Florence to finally not just leave him, but full-on quit their partnership in chess. And that sends Freddie into singing quite possibly the highest song to ever exist (laughs) in musicals, Pity the Child. I think Pity the Child, remember I talked about the thematic problems in the show. For sure. I think Pity the Child falls into the who cares problem category. I mean, at this point, we're so put off by Freddie's behavior and attitude that to then give him this really vocal feat kind of falls on deaf ears a little bit. Maybe it could have had a role later in the show, but placed as it is, it seems like an awkward early climax. In the Broadway version, Pity the Child, does it was moved to the second act. Because in this version, Freddie just kind of disappears at the end of the show and nobody nobody knows why. Right. So now Anatoly is the new world champion. And the first thing that he does is says, I'm going to Disneyland. And by Disneyland, I mean leaving the Soviet Union forever and seeks asylum at the British embassy. That means Florence and him are now a thing. And as they go to the airport... Once again, here come the media, because the media is obsessed with chess, if we've learned anything about <laughs> about the world. They come to basically question him. Why on earth would you leave the Soviet Union? And he ends the entire first act by singing this song called Anthem. And I think this event and its musical consequences are why chess does not work. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think we see the moment on stage where Anatoly decides to defect. If memory serves, we hear the press tell us, like, breaking newscast, Anatoly has decided to defect, something like that. You're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is the most important decision of the show, and we never see it, and we never hear a song about it. So we we are outside of Anatoly's head from that point forward. We don't really know what motivated him. We needed to hear that in song. Mm Mm-hmm. And when he does kind of sing about it in Anthem, it's after the fact, right? It's already happened. And the lyrics of Anthem are really inscrutable. They're really vague. It's not clear if he's saying, just because I've left Russia doesn't mean I don't love it. Or if he's saying, the only nation I owe allegiance to is my own value system, which I am metaphorically calling a nation and describing it as if it has boundaries. So the music is soaring and actually quite evocative. 
the lyrics are very unsatisfying, and it's just like "Don't Cry for Me, Argentina." Like, what what exactly are you saying? I'm I'm so mesmerized by this music. I'm not paying attention to the fact that you're not saying anything specific. Thank you. I'm so glad you said that. I've never understood why "Don't Cry for Me, Argentina" was is the sensation it is. It's so beautiful musically. It's well, both gorgeous these songs are. and doesn't mean anything. It's like a Rorschach blot. You know, we impose <laughs> our own meaning onto it. We we imagine what we want them to be saying. And also, here's the third aspect of this problem. There's nothing in that song that refers to Florence or mm-hmm. their romantic relationship. It's a very almost introspective song about nothing. And it doesn't refer to the things that we care about. Like we, we are invested in his relationship with Florence because we saw that happen during the, and we heard it in a song during the mountain scene. So we're kind of bored. We're like, okay, let's, we want these let's two to be Let's do it. Happy. Let's go there. So then we hear the press tell us that this happened. And then he does it. When he does sing, it's not about that. So it's, it's an emotional void and the show never recovers from it. Wow. This is really interesting. And I hope that everybody listening is taking this as actually a constructive conversation because that's the way it feels to me. It's not about just talking trash about a show and what it did wrong. But in fact, we're exploring the art form. But we're, in a way, we're highlighting what could have been, which is, I think, what we all yearn for with this show. Yes. Yeah. Because there are things that are so evocative about it. And it's like, okay, but it didn't work. So what can we learn about musical theater because of it? One song could have saved this show, and it would have been throwing away Anthem or or maybe rewriting the lyrics and moving it earlier so it happened when Anatoly made that decision. I think that would have actually been the one change that would have made the show really resonate from start to finish. Wow. Too yep. bad. Yeah. Okay, Act 2 takes place in Bangkok, Thailand. And it's a year later. We're back to the chess championship. So... Freddie is already in Bangkok. He, of course, is uh, does not have a Florence, but he does have the Bangkok nightlife. <laughs> and so Act 2 opens with One Night in Bangkok, which, as we've talked at nauseum, is a kind of an outlier in musical theater and uh, pop music in general. It is an entertaining song, and it is a little strange. I'm not even sure if it's like politically insensitive or you know socially irresponsible at this point you mean the sort of vaguely orchestral colors that are used musically yeah i i mean is it a celebration of the area is it more of a king and i look at thailand like poor thailand we just sometimes <laughs> we never cut it any slack this falls into the who cares uh, category of problem because we don't really care about the seedy nightlife of, of Bangkok and it has no relationship to the story at all. Like it's, it's nope. not like it's not like somebody hires a prostitute at a brothel and that causes a problem. It's just this is the song when the audience is sitting down. We're trying to get some energy going toward the second act right yeah, at the top. Indeed. Anatoly and Florence also show up to this championship, as well as Anatoly's actual wife, Svetlana. And now here we come to a place where I find big-time problems, because Anatoly's been married this whole time, and he just left the country, but no one bothered to ask about him leaving his wife? It's kind of an afterthought, isn't it? It's a total afterthought. And now what is she doing? Like, who is this woman that she's like, I, I need to go to Thailand and win back the man who left me because of a chess game. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not, I don't know who Svetlana is. I don't know who Anatoly is. And it's act two. And how do you feel about Anatoly after learning this information about him? No, thank you. Florence, you, it looks like you traded one douchebag for another one. Right. So it kind of, this plot twist kills our sympathy for Anatoly and it clouds our sympathy for Florence because she's, I guess, a homewrecker. Right. Then we meet another chess player. He's like the new thing from the Soviet Union. Like the government has (laughs) crafted Rocky style, I guess, this amazing opponent. And the one and only thing that this opponent, which I'm trying to, his name is Leonid Villagand. I think it's, they pronounce it like veganed, I think. Oh, veganed. Thank you. Good old vegan. His one purpose is to embarrass Anatoly. That's really what they want to do. And there's this number called the Soviet Machine. Which is a great tune. And is one that got cut for Broadway. 
That's interesting. I didn't know that. Okay, so now we're in the championship. And oh wait, no, no, no. I I have to look at my notes now because Act Two gets a little complex. I think if you want to bird's eye view it, there's this showdown now between Anatoly and Vigand. The Russians really need to recapture their face. And the strategies they employ in order to make this happen is they bring, as mentioned, Svetlana to kind of throw him off his game. So Svetlana is just another piece on the board game. Exactly. And they have another strategy at the same time. If memory serves, they they tell Florence, hey, we dug up your dad. He's in Soviet jail. Yes. Uh, if you can get Anatoly to throw the game, we'll get him out of prison and return him as well as a number of other American captives. Wouldn't that be great? Exactly. So now everybody has a reason for Anatoly to lose. What's then fascinating, however, is that Freddy ends up approaching Anatoly and saying that in all of his time watching Vegan play chess, he has noticed kind of a fatal weakness in his technique. I think you're combining two things because Freddy first, well, that does happen for sure. But first Freddy approaches because he's working for kind of the the syndicate that's trying to get Anatoly to fail. And he takes a stab at convincing Anatoly to quit and that fails as well. And then later Freddy comes back now under his own accord and has a more heart-to-heart talk. Oh my gosh. All of these like behind-the-scenes talks and spy game sort of things. And then in the middle of it all, Svetlana and Florence are bonding <laughs> about the fact that they're still kind of in love with the same man, and they sing I Know Him So Well, which is why Whitney Houston singing the song with her, her mom <laughs> it's weird. is wildly inappropriate. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's possible they might have that commonality, but it's strange to celebrate it. What I do want to applaud is that at least it's not a cat fight. Right. It's kind of echoes of Guys and Dolls, maybe, where Sarah sits down with uh, uh, Adelaide and they kind of have this heart-to-heart. Yeah, true. Except now they're both in love with Nathan. Right, exactly. It's a little a little different in that respect. <laughs> now we're at the final match, and... I guess, was Freddy eliminated at some point? In this version of the show, in the British version, I don't think uh-huh. Freddy was playing. Uh, he and- just went to Bangkok for the nightlife? No, no. He, um, that would be very funny, and I wish that were true. He's working, <laughs> he's working for big media, and big media is kind of in on the, the conspiracy to make Anatoly lose. He did like an inside baseball interview earlier on in the show with Anatoly, and it's like, hey, it's kind of funny that we former competitors are here having a chit-chat. Well, oh, um, and then he starts right. needling him with these questions that are meant to, to piss him off. To throw is, him off. Yeah. Which so, is why I thought, okay, well, if he wants to throw him off that bad, obviously they're still competitors, but not the case. No, that was I, just an insight from the Soviets. Okay, now we're at the end. Anatoly is playing our, our friend Vegan. He uses the tips that Freddie gave him, and he wins. Florence, after kind of becoming a Svetlana sympathizer, basically confesses to him that maybe he should return to his family because she feels guilty. And they sing a, you know, a reprise of You and I, which is my favorite, because their romance is coming to an end. It's, it's all over. Um, it's all over. Then I guess the real tragedy of this ending is that Florence hears that the guy in prison that might end up being her father was never her father. And that or there's she, some, some doubt is thrown on that. Yeah. So now she's not only lost the man she loves, she has lost hope that her father may still be alive. Well, what happens is that, um, so Anatoly does not take the deal for the game and will set Florence's father free, but they offer him a similar deal, defect back to the Soviet Union and will set Florence's father free along with the capture oh, really? of the agents. Yeah. So that, so it seems to be an actually decent ending because Anatoly gives up his freedom to help Florence mm, to free right. her father. And, and we could accept that as a, as a noble, tragic ending. But then at the very last minute, the uh, American, I think, CIA guy who's trying to negotiate this deal 
tells Florence, you know, um, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna free your dad, uh, except we're not a hundred percent sure that he's okay, he's he's still alive. But if he's alive, we'll free him. So he pulls the rug out from under us just when we were feeling like there was some point to this whole story. The end. The end. Exactly. And Florence sings anthem again, which is the song with no meaning. So. <laughs> it's such a nihilistic ending and they didn't all they had to do was not add that one cruel twist and it would have been an okay ending i've spent the last week reading the script reading all of these summaries and i still have a hard time spitting it out it is very dense and there's 15 versions and all the details change between them but you know what gosh dang it that album is a really fun time to listen to I'm still going to listen to nobody as on nobody's side and get chills, even though the story at that point makes no sense. And I think that's kind of getting back to where we started. Mm-hmm. Another lyrical shout out. Um, <laughs> the show has such a dramatic sensibility to it. There are these suggestions of moments through really glorious music that allows us to imagine scenes that might not have actually been as good as the ones that are on stage. And I think that vision of the, the vision of what could have the show could have been really sustains its memory and makes it a favorite despite its many problems. Beautifully said, and also brings me to my point. Is there a place for musical theater that doesn't involve theater? That's an intriguing question, but I'm not sure what it means. Meaning, maybe chess was never meant to be on stage. Maybe. <laughs> It was always meant to thrill us by means of a cast album of a show that doesn't actually exist. I could see that argument because the the show that we construct in our heads from listening to the cast album might be better than any version that's manifested on stage. Musical theater has inspired composers to create theater in their own medium. And in this case, you are inspiring composers who spent a lot of time writing albums in the name of ABBA and Tim Rice who spent a lot of his theater career creating concept albums that would give way to stage productions that became legendary but not always successful or at least artistically celebrated. So maybe musical theater existing in album form only is almost a subgenre of musical theater. I don't think Jesus Christ Superstar is particularly fun to watch in any form, but what an album. So maybe, and that's also a case where uh, Tim Rice was creating a album before a show. So maybe that's, maybe that's what happens with uh, conceptual albums. They are musically stunning and sometimes they may uh, overshadow the, the musical that comes out of them. Yeah, like you said, it inspires in our minds a musical that will never live up to that vision. A bittersweet end, but it's a good description of chess. As always, if you have recommendations for shows you'd like us to cover on a musical theater podcast, you can always email me at a musical podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at a musical podcast for more great content. And while you're at it, hop on over to our T Public store where we have designs based on favorite moments from episodes past and present. Michael, how can we stay up to date with everything that you're doing during this crazy time? MikeMusic.com is a good central hub for what I do as a composer generally. You have to search a little bit to find the musical theater section, but that is there alongside all the film music and game music stuff. That's so great. I know that you were just working on a film. Do you want to talk to us about what it was like? Sure. It's not a film in the traditional sense, but it was an internet incarnation of a stage musical. Sort of the reverse of what we were talking about. But it was a show called Gideon and the Blundersnorp, which is a family-friendly musical, and we couldn't perform it because of the coronavirus, so we put it online as an online approximation of a musical theater show. So if you want to hunt that down, you can go to Gideon and the Blundersnorp on Instagram. How cool! Well, we'll definitely tag it in our post, for, uh, our post this week. Um, thank you again for shedding so much light on this interesting little corner of musical theater. And everybody out there, checkmate.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.